every veterinarian, every veterinary student should take an improv class. It will change your brain. It will rewire your brain. It will make you a better listener. It will make you a better team member. It will make you be able to roll with things because veterinarians I find are super binary. From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. We are back, and I'm joined by Canadian veterinarian, comedian, author, and cancer survivor, Dr. Sarah Boston. Sarah graduated from the Western College of Veterinary Medicine in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada in 1996. I'm fairly sure those words were entirely made up to pay me back for all the times I asked my American friends to say Scottish names. Sorry, American friends, and I know your pain. Anyway, Sarah completed a rotating internship at the University of Guelph the following year. She then returned to Western Canada for three years of general practice before going to the University of Guelph for residency in small animal surgery, becoming board certified in 2004. Sarah followed this up with a fellowship in surgical oncology in 2005 and is an ACVS founding fellow of both surgical oncology and oromaxillofacial surgery. She was on faculty for five years before moving south to the University of Florida where she was an associate professor of surgical oncology. Having achieved tenure at both institutions, she took the less beaten path and moved back to Canada where she started a surgical oncology service at 404 Veterinary Emergency and Referral in Newmarket. Sarah has authored numerous journal articles and textbook chapters on surgical oncology. Sarah is also a published author and cancer survivor. Her first book, Lucky Dog, How Being a Veterinarian Saved My Life, was published in 2014. In addition to her writing and vet work, Sarah has found a huge creative outlet in comedy and having made the top 10 in CBC Comedy's 2019 Next Up Amateur Comedy Competition, she decided to make comedy her next big move, undertaking a two-year diploma qualification at comedy school. Now just before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor which is the Thrive community from us here at Vetex. If you are struggling with managing time, feeling like an imposter or you're burned out then you need to make a change. The good news is you're not broken and you're not a bad fit for the profession. You're simply missing some super important skills no one teaches at university. Skills you will learn as part of the Vetex community. Thrive is a race accredited professional skills course where members receive training toolkits and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more, visit vetexinternational.com today. In this episode, we delve into Sarah's past and learn the forces that shaped her from living her own at age 15 to her crazy patients in Florida, to clown school and overcoming cancer. This guarantees to be an interesting episode. So without further ado, enjoy this, my conversation with Dr. Sarah Boston. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sarah Boston. Thank you so much for having me. This is a long, long overdue conversation with many, many potential blast-off points. I think from the myriad of false start conversations we've had on, on social media. But I thought I might start off by talking about your gorgeous puppy. Because my daughter, and I try not to go anywhere near social media when she's around and I I try not to go anywhere near social media if I can avoid it at all these days but is loopy about German Shepherds so Earl right Earl and uh, looks like a lot of fun so tell me I love Shepherds and I hate Shepherds (laughs) what do you like about Shepherd how did you end up with a Shepherd tell me the story so because he's actually half healer because I love healers like Australian healers and I lost my dog who was half healer uh, in May, like so almost a year ago. And so I want another healer. 
Yep. And this guy was like, oh, I have healer puppies. And the mom was a healer. The dad is a German Shepherd. And Earl looks like a purebred German Shepherd. I don't know what happened. Everyone's like, oh, that. And I used to correct people. I'd be like, oh, no, he's not. Like, I don't know why I need to do that. People are like, oh, you're Shepherd. I'm like, he's not. He's half healer. But now I'm just like, yes. I tell you what, when, when you look at him, I'm looking at a photo of him just now. And when you say it, he totally does have slightly shorter ears and a slightly shorter muzzle, like a bit of a healer's face, doesn't he? He's a handsome boy anyway. Yeah, his back end is very straight. And that I'm grateful for that. He looks like he's fun. Well, you know, people who are always like, I would never get a puppy. No, like people are like, I don't want a puppy. And I'm like, oh no, I always get a puppy because I can mold them to the perfect dog. Earl was like, it was like having a, like a wild animal in my home. <laughs> the last three months so bad oh my god i love him so much he's such a bad puppy but it's getting better because he's six months old so every week he's better but when we first brought him home my husband was like should we take him back yeah it's been interesting having him it's quite a combination uh, having worked and lived in australia for a few years that was my introduction to healers and like i much prefer them to collies in terms of working dogs they're just I wouldn't say they're calm might not be the right word, but they're more robust and less neurotic. Yeah. He needs a job, though. I need to figure out what his job's going to be. Yeah. Rather than just appearing as your, your comedy shill, that could be his job. <laughs> your comedy foil. Yeah. Actually, I'm doing comedy at a pub that, or like it's a, a brewery. I, I mean, this probably isn't exciting for you at all because you're in England, but it's exciting for me. The brewery accepts dogs like they love having dogs in the brewery. So I'm doing comedy at a brewery and Earl's going to come. Uh, you said comedy and brewery and that's extremely exciting to me. There's so much to dig into in this conversation. Yeah. Does that make me bad that that was the one thing in that sentence that I didn't get totally excited about? Does that maybe I'm burned out and Which like part? hate veterinary medicine as well by this point. The, the dog's what part, part. Were you not excited about? Oh, you're like, yeah, the dog part. Like I was totally excited about the brewery and the comedy. And I just totally blanked Earl. (laughs) I'll send you a picture of Earl. I'm sorry, Earl. When I do comedy. Thank you. I would like that. Now, I would like to take us back in time, back in the dim and distant time, because there's a lot of stuff to cover in our conversation today, including your book, I want to talk about your book, I want to talk about comedy, I kind of want to talk about your career and journey through veterinary medicine. But as a preamble to that, there's a lot of, as there are with all humans, but there's a lot of things I'm curious about in your your life, your being. But something I don't know, and it would be a great place to start, would be, you know, how did you find your way into veterinary medicine? Where was your sort of, if you go back up the sort of river to the, the source of this journey, and what does it look like for Sarah Boston? Yeah, I was like like a lot of kids, you know, that were like, I'm going to be a vet from when I was six. And then just that was just what I was doing. And then, you know, my parents, fairly goal oriented parents. So they were like, you're going to be a vet. You have to be good at science. And it was good and bad. Like it was great because I had a goal and it was probably a little bit bad because I didn't feed the creative side of me, which is actually it's a big part of me because I was just like the science person. So yeah, I was one of those people. And I think there's a lot of veterinarians like this. that just kind of always knew, always had an affinity for animals, you know, always felt like something special as far as their connection to animals and just followed that. 
Was there anything? Because I feel like a lot of human beings that have in, innate empathy, which is most human beings, have that sort of like of animals. So I, two questions. One would be, was there a moment? Was there a thing? Was there, a, was there something that put you in that space? And also, I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about your parents. Cause I've certainly seen some quotes from you when we're doing our research on a guest or some co- interesting quotes from your, like how your mom would respond to, you know, getting, frankly, exam marks I, I could have dreamt of getting and same sort of thing with your, your father. I'd love to hear a bit more about those sort of three input points or questions. Can you tell us a bit more there? I don't think I have a moment. Like, actually, it's funny that you say that because a lot of, I review people applying for residencies and they'll usually write a little story about the dog dying and bleeding out and then the surgeon saved them because they took out their spleen. And by the way, if you're applying for residency, don't do that. It's it's a very bad idea. Bad idea. Don't do it. But I've read a lot of those stories where the people, I mean, it's probably coming from their heart. That's their moment. I don't have that moment, but I just grew up with animals, loved animals, started volunteering at a vet clinic, had a really nice veterinarian as my mentor in a small town who let me do things that you would never let a child do now like I used to go in the clinic by myself at like 10 I had keys to the hospital I'd go in and like let dogs out and stuff I mean it's actually nuts now that I think about it (laughs) but that was cool I was a very responsible 10 year old anyway my daughter's nine it's hard to even believe that you know what's really funny is some things that have happened to me like my parents moved away when I was 15 and I was living in Saskatoon I was going into grade 12 and I wanted to go to vet school and that's where the vet school was and they just they left and I just live by myself and I've got friends with kids about that age now and I'm like oh yeah that's when I started living by myself and my friends are just like you know so different I always say I'm generation x and I was raised feral basically Uh, that's right (laughs) so okay so all right there is a ton like I don't think we're going to get anywhere near the rest of the podcast but I, I like so we're just going to dig Let's into my Let's dig chapter. in there. Um, <laughs> I know this might turn into therapy. <laughs> I have to like, just point out, I'm in no way a therapist. And I'm just asking questions, but you're on a couch. Are you're you good. Sure? I would have sent tissues yeah. if I knew. <laughs> I'm confident I'm not a therapist. Yes. Uh, and that's a good thing for the world, I suspect. Okay. So tell me about the input of your parents then. We're all kind of the, the makeup of our you know nature and nurture, but describe a bit more because that's that's kind of an unusual move and and what were the influences you like you you were to use your word feral but tell me more I mean my parents were very academically oriented I would say so as long as that was going well you could just do whatever does that make sense I could go out with my friends I never had a curfew like I could live by myself as long as the marks like as long as the marks were coming in I was good so yeah so I had a lot of freedom because of that However, can I just jump ahead? Because this makes me laugh. Because I, I'm going to college now. So I had to, like, as a mature student, apply for college for comedy school. And I had to send them my marks from high school. And I got so mad at my parents because I was like, I had, like, such good marks. And I never got any. Like, I had straight 90s. You know, the parents that would, like, give their kids, like, oh, you get this much money for an A and this much for a B. And, and I'm like, I never got anything. I did not... Anyway, it's just an issue I, I did raise after with my mother. I was like, why didn't I get a little more praise for that? <laughs> because, but it was just expected. Does that make sense? I mean, do you think that they were just giving you early feedback that you, right? Yeah, they were just going to leave when you were 15. Yeah. That was just the hardball moment where like, she's not taking a hint. 
<laughs> I could have gone with them. I chose not to. I think that's an important distinction, Dave. Okay, so... There are reasons. <laughs> there were reasons. Do you want to hear them? Hell yes. One. Like, what is, it? is this a selection? Yes, no, or hell yes? Yeah. Well, okay. I was going into grade 12, which is our senior year. And in Ontario, which is like where they were moving to another province in Canada, at the time, it was grade 13. So their plan was I move with them, I leave my school, all my friends, I'm like president of student council, blah, blah, blah. I go to a new high school in grade 12 and have to do two years of high school and then I have to move again to go to vet school. And I was like, no, that does not. Or I could stay in the town where the vet school is with all my friends. So I was like, "Mm, no. And they were fine because, again, the marks were (laughs) the marks. We're good. So I was good. That's all that matters. So there's some pretty tight boundaries in one area of life and a whole yeah. lot of fuck it in the other area of your life. Yeah. Or everywhere else in your life. It's true. But it was fine. Everything was fine. It was a different time. It was just, I just wow. have to say, it was just a different time. Like, I know it, yeah, it just, it just was. But it worked out great. What did that give? What did that build in you? What did, you know, if you look back on that now... How did that help form your character? Like, what elements of it did it did it put together for you? These are blunt dissection questions. I think it made me really independent, which I really am. But I think I was. So I don't know. Did it make me independent or was it? You know, I don't know. But I'm independent. It helped me believe I can do things, like have confidence to do things. So that was good. I mean, it was actually really good for me. Now, I also want to ask, what did your parents do? Like, what were their jobs? So super artsy family. Like, my dad was an education playwright, author, and my mom actually was also in education, but kind of moved to being, a, like, a journalist and a writer. Huh. That's totally surprised me, because I thought, given their sort of rigid adherence to their... Maybe that explains why, get your grades, get your grades, but, you know, screw it. You know, the rest of your life can be quite creatively focused <laughs> without boundaries. Like, unbridled might be the uncharitable word for that. yeah. You know, my dad, I have this thing about my dad saying, you know, why veterinary medicine was good to go into. And he just would always say, like, my dad's quite a bit older than me. He's British. And he would always say, it's your vocational ticket. It's your, like, basically meaning, like, when you're a vet, you can go be a vet anywhere, right? Like, you, no one can take away that you're a vet. If you're a writer, like, you know, I published a book, so I'm a writer. But what am I going to walk around saying I'm a writer? You don't get a check for being a writer, right? <laughs> so you don't get a job. <laughs> Like, it's not as defined, right? But for my parents, it was like, have a vocational ticket. It's super, super important. So, and I think the other thing, which I was laughing about this the other day, is like, if you grow up during a recession, like in the late 70s, early 80s, it was a terrible recession in North America. And I'm sorry, I don't know if there was in the UK, but like people were walking away from their homes because the mortgage rates went up to 17 or 18%. It was just, so like now. (laughs) 100%, yeah. My husband and I are like getting a mortgage. I'm like, we have to lock it in, which is. Because it's just like you have these things as you're growing up that you're just like, you got to lock that down, right? Because it's going to be 18%, which would never happen. Like, that is a un- completely unreasonable thing. But there's just certain things, you know, that you just get in your head. So it's like, have a vocational ticket, lock in that mortgage rate, guys. That's my dad's advice. <laughs> Maybe that's a British thing as well. It might be. I'm like, and especially because I feel like I want a refund on this decade already. 
like so far it's not yeah, really it hasn't, knocked out of the park. No, I would I would concur. Yeah. I sort of think, God, maybe it could be like twenty percent interest rates again before we're done here with the way inflation is going. It's like oh. lock lock it in, Sarah Boston, lock it in now. <laughs> <laughs> I hear about inflation on the radio, I'm like, Oh my god, <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah. No, you're right. This so far I didn't Why know. Why's my meant- dad on this podcast? <laughs> yeah. I, when you said this decade, I thought you meant the last 10 years, but you mean 2020 moving forward. Is that what you mean? Yeah, well, fuck it. 2019 and before was pretty good. Like, no, it's yeah. 2020s yeah. have been a shit no, show. I would agree. I concur. I think for lots of people. But yeah, I sometimes think about, I don't mean things are overall going well, but just when I, th- I think about things that have happened this year, I'm like, oh, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah. You mentioned sitting and doing the applications to vet school and reviewing applications and the the stories. And immediately I wanted to ask you, what is the best residency? In in fairness to the worst, because the one I really want to hear is the worst. But in balance, what is the best residency application story that you have reviewed that sticks out for you? And was there anything that sticks out as the worst for any reasons? You know, the worst is actually sticking in my head. So I might start with that. Let's go with that. It horrified me. And it wasn't the applicant because they were great. Okay, I'll just say they were great. It was the letter. It was a letter that someone wrote about the applicant. And I don't want to identify them at all. So I'm just not going to say their gender. But they were an intern. Yes. Their mother died during their internship suddenly. And the letter praised them because they didn't go home and they stayed and worked. And I was like (gasps) so angry that a mentor would let an intern that they're in charge of, you just gasp, that's appropriate. Like I was like, okay, what is going on in that hospital that that seemed appropriate, that you are praising it, like and saying, wow, their work ethic is great, that you couldn't just take over for like three days. And also what state of mind is that person in when they're practicing veterinary medicine I was so horrified I wanted to call the person who wrote the letter and just say like what is what is wrong with you that you think that that is like a reason I mean yeah anyway that had nothing to do with the candidate so at all because they were obvious but except for that they felt like they had to stay there like I just like that was a bit of a a moment in veterinary medicine for me personally because I was like what are we doing like that is not humane. That's not like nothing about this is good. And yeah. So anyway, that just struck that when you said what was the worst, I just remember reading that and going, wow, <laughs> we have a problem. Okay. So you have been, and you know, I think people can check out in the show notes and also the introduction we went through your, your career potted history version uh, at a million miles an hour, but you have traveled and studied in various locations and really you know you're experiencing my sense is that perhaps and we'll we'll perhaps come on to you know the the cancer and the book and that really looks like that unlocked I don't want to use the word gave permission but certainly unlocked something that was in you in any case you've alluded to this creative side that perhaps was somewhat undernourished or underexpressed that came alive but before we dive into down that sort of rabbit hole, I want to just ask you from your viewpoint, looking as you do over, you know, veterinary medicine, like, what do you see? Like, what's got you worried? Uh, what gives you hope? Like, how do you see the picture unfolding here? Hmm. 
it's funny because some of the things that used to worry me, I don't know, they're getting better, but then there's other parts that are getting worse. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, Can you speak to those? So again, I hate when people say this, but like there was a bit of more harshness, I think, when I was going through and going through my internship and residency of just like, you're going to suck it up. I did this. You're going to do it. And no one cared. Like no one cared. And, you know, times when I've been in an on-call rota situation and someone's come out of that for some reason, they're just like, well, now you're one in three. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like that was the mentality. It was like, you're just going to fill it in. Like it didn't matter that you used to be one in five, but now you're one in three with this really, you know, and you just did it. Like it to question that or not do it, like you're not a team player and you have to cover it. Right. And I think that's improved. Like, and that's people younger than me that have sort of been like, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that, which is great. I think that's fantastic. I think that has gotten better. I, like no one talked about wellness when I was a student. That wasn't a thing. Suicide was like, no one talked about it. It was just someone died suddenly, you know, a vet who's 40 died suddenly and no one questioned. People knew, but they didn't. It was like they were protecting the family or there was some shame associated with it. And now I find like, you know, it's obviously tragic when this happens, but some families want to share that story and try to stop this from happening, you know. So, of course, that I'm saying that that's progress. It's not because you're talking about someone who's taken their life, but at least we're talking about it now. Of course. So I think that's like a step in the right direction because if you don't address that something's even happening, like, no one even, like when I went through, no one even, it was just like, oh, you know, or it, no one talked about it. And so at least we're at least we're talking about it, but it's still a terrible problem in our profession. So, I mean, I think the things that give me hope are that, you know, veterinarians are starting to take a bit more charge of their schedules and their lives and trying to have some balance, although it's so hard and it's been so hard during the pandemic for people to achieve that. And then there's other things that I think are worse. I feel like the pandemic has made just people in general really rough on each other. And so just by definition, they're rough on veterinarians, rough on veterinary staff. And it's just like, maybe people are going feral. I'll use that word again. Like they're just behaving in ways that you're like, wow, I don't know if someone would do that three years ago, like, or talk to a veterinarian that way. That is worrying to me. And I think the level of burnout is very worrying to me. And the fact that we're, I mean, I've been two years, basically I'm short staffed every week. Someone's out sick or, you know, it's just, you just learn that you're short staffed all the time. And, and then that gets dumped on your staff, right? Like they're just working harder, you're working harder. And we just are like, this is how it is. So I don't know. There's good and bad, I would say. The word entitlement sprang into my head there. And I think it's a word that's thrown around. But do you think everybody has become more entitled? Like are, are clients being greater douchebags because they are feeling a sense of entitlement? Are we all asking for more money because of that? You know, people are not kind to each other in veterinary medicine, like we're, we're forever bashing clients, but the number of people who are profoundly unkind to each other on Facebook, who are supposed professionals, is incredible. Like I, I heard, for example, a story of somebody who bagged out an employer and then another member of that team defended the company who then got completely attacked and piled on for depending, just having an opinion that conflicted with somebody's reality. So they, they suddenly, somebody's taken it completely, you know, n not a comment. They didn't see it as a comment. They saw it as a personal attack. And we talk about the need for psychological safety and that, that just being a huge component of a happy, functional workplace. And yet you just see complete 
lack of psychological safety playing out amongst professionals all over. Is it just clients being mean or is it everyone being mean? Or like, how, like it's COVID, we've been vaccinated against COVID and also we seem to have lost our empathy and compassion. Like we just don't give a shit anymore. I can't really speak to the Facebook. I mean, Facebook can just be so horrible anyway. So I think it's just Facebook's horrible. Comments on Facebook are horrible. So it's, it's going to be horrible. Because <laughs> it's Facebook. I'm not trying to, I'm just saying like it is, it's kind of horrible. I think one thing I've observed is like veterinarians are a bit more like, I'm just going to take care of myself and I'm not going to think about the bigger picture. So, you know, what that looks like for me as a surgical oncologist, and I joke about this, but it like the referrals I get are, and I know everyone's busy. People are going to get mad. I'm saying this, but there's such poor quality. Like there's no, there's not even information about a physical exam. There's nothing like people don't send me anything. It's just like, you know, I've joked about this before. People just write cancer on a piece of paper, (laughs) fax it to me. And like, this is my problem now, or they'll send me a hundred pages of a medical record and I don't have time to go through it. And I'm like, you know, if you don't have time to summarize it, I don't have time to read it. And then I'm scared I'm going to miss something. So that kind of lack of, but, you know, if you challenge a veterinarian on that, they would say, I don't have time. And they probably don't. Like, I, I get it. But on the other hand, I'm like, but why do I, now the burden's on me and my time. And so I think we need to be a bit more respectful of each other. You know, there's always a weird thing between specialists and, and primary care vets that I always try to break down of like, they feel that they're going to be judged or, you know, it's just this whole, like, it's very strange. So, I mean, I, I do my best to have a good relationship with my referring veterinarians, but that's always kind of a weird thing that's there. But I have found during the pandemic, it's just, and then the other thing, the other side to that is like, you know, I'm a surgeon for cancer. I'm not a paleo care doctor, but some of these clients, they don't feel they can get back to their primary care vet and they, they have nowhere to go. Like they're falling between the cracks. Cause like, I don't do that palliative care like I, I that's not my practice but then they they feel stuck so they keep calling and they want rechecks but they're never going to do surgery and so it's helped me learn about some of the palliative care doctors in my area and I think there's a huge need for that and I think we've kind of got to figure that out like is if you can't do that as a primary care vet you've got to find someone who can and it can't just be this sort of like oh you you have cancer in your title so <laughs> you're gonna deal with this you're gonna deal with this so I don't know that's what I've observed like and I feel like people are just kind of siloed even within a hospital, like they're just taking care of their own shit, pardon my French, and they're not really thinking about, oh, how's that going to affect other people? I don't know. But I, I think maybe that's what COVID's done a little bit. Everyone's just so maxed out. That almost speaks to professionalism in some ways, because yeah. I, I would have I would have had my backside kicked from here at Kingdom Come, and people I was referring to would not have accepted a referral given that, that sort of level of quality or lack of quality. So one other thing I'm curious of, the quality of the cases, I wondered if you're actually going to say the type of cases that probably could quite perfect, you know, could be managed. Are they easier, the cases that are being referred? That's that's another trend I wonder about, because when I speak with my orthopedic colleagues and my surgical, non-cancer surgery colleagues, soft tissue, I think is the word I'm desperately groping for there. They say that the things they get referred now, they would never have been referred 10 years ago. I realise that's at the risk of making me sound a little bit like, when I was a lad, uh, we would have referred nothing kind of thing. But it was kind of true. Like, we would take it on. And it was part of the joy of the job was learning those skills and taking those things on. I'm curious about the trend more than anything. Yeah. It's weird, though, because you see that, like, we had a bit of a recession here, like 2008. And then people wouldn't refer as much. They would, because they weren't as busy, they weren't doing the primary care work and so they would keep those cases whether that's Mm -hmm. because of 
trying to make the money or retain the money in their practice or just wanting to do it and having a bit more time. I can't speak to people's motivations, but you definitely noticed a change. Like things weren't getting referred as much. And now, you know, people are just so like they can't even get their yearly physicals and, and heartworm. They can't even get those appointments done. So they can't get the emergency cases done. So they can't get the referral cases done. So I don't know exactly what's happening. There's probably some fear too, that if it doesn't go well, they're going to get sued. And so it's kind of like, cause I've, I have said to people when they, you know, if there's cost concerns, Oh, well, why don't you talk to your vet? And they're like, absolutely no way my vet's going to tackle that. And it's like, so they've always, they've had that conversation and I, I don't know. Cause you know, I'm not there, but I did do three years of, as a primary care vet. And I mean, it's really hard. I, I like, I have a very good appreciation for how challenging it is Cause it's like, now you're going to try to do a cruciate. Now you're doing a cystotomy and now you're managing a diabetic and now, and it's just like, it's a lot, it's a very, very difficult job in my opinion. So if you're burning out, you're not going to be like, Oh, I think I'll tackle this. I don't know. Some people will, but in general, you're probably not going to, cause you just don't have the bandwidth, which is totally fine. But I also think on the other end of that, like there's some basic stuff people could do, like they could do a biopsy, blood work, chest x-rays like that. And, you know, general practitioners can do that. And it probably is more satisfying to do that. But I think everyone's just like, they're full. <laughs> They don't, they don't have no more room, you know, or they can't even think through what they want to do. They just are like, no, I'm sending the case. I don't want to deal with it. So I wonder how long that will last for. And I don't know what the status quo is in Canada, whether there's still a lot of curbside or whether things are kind of opening back up and getting back to normal. Here in the UK, we've basically decided that COVID doesn't exist anymore and you don't even have to get COVID tested to get on a plane or prove you're vaccinated to come to the UK anymore because we are just one massive COVID party right now and we don't seem to care and it doesn't seem to be you know wrecking we've got super high COVID rates right now loads of people getting it but even the guidelines have changed if you're not symptomatic even if you're testing positive you should go to work here so it's completely changed from where it was. I don't know that people are super comfortable with that, especially in face-to-face -face consulting situations. But it's been one of the most disruptive things on the industry to lose staff, as you're saying. Like, if it's not burnout, it's someone goes down with COVID and that maxes out the chances of other people burning out. So no easy decisions, I think. But are you... Uh, like, is there a sense of things getting easier? You know, there's a whole bunch of those COVID puppies that are going to go back to the pound. I assume that Earl's not going to be one of them. No. But there's a bunch of them that people <laughs> just got and they won't want to keep. So this sort of wave, which was made worse by the complexity of cases and the, the newly adopted or rescued dogs coming into the marketplace, there's going to be some readjustment of that. So it's not going to be as tough as it's been. And there's a big readjustment in the, the workflow that we're experiencing. I don't think we've readjusted enough. That was my question was, are, are we moving into a place where it's getting easier? Do you have a sense of that? Well, I mean, I guess the one thing I would speak to is telemedicine. So I, I love telemedicine and I was a really early adopter because I was actually looking into it before COVID because I have a lot of clients that come from far away yeah. and then they would come in and they couldn't get a CT on the same day and they would get really, really mad at me. And I was just like, this is crazy. Like, so, or I could never predict. I'm like, I don't know who has $3,000 for a CT. I, I can't call them ahead of time and ask them. So I can't book them a spot. So anyway, kind of just because of the nature of my caseload and where my clients are coming from, more for their convenience, I was going to look into the telemedicine and then COVID happened and I had a platform. It's not the one I'm using right now, but I just had one ready to go. So I just started doing it. And it, it was great for me because 
the clients basically got the option of like no appointment or this appointment, like that was it. And so they were like, okay, that's fine. And it wasn't smooth for me at the beginning because I was trying to figure it all out, but it didn't matter because clients were just grateful. And you had a bit of paper with cancer written on it. <laughs> and I'd be like looking, like trying to look at their dog. Yeah, I'd be like asking people to send pictures too because it's telemedicine. People don't send a picture or they just send like this like really blurry picture of just fur. <laughs> oh, I know exactly what to do with that. That's very helpful. Very helpful. That's how good an oncologist you are. Yeah, exactly. I don't need any information or a physical exam. Just a blurry dogogram and I will have a plan for you. I do think veterinary medicine could have helped itself more. And there's still people that don't want to do telemedicine and they're dragging their feet and like teletriage. And there's so many tools that could help us be more efficient and have people work from home. If they need to work from home, they can do telemedicine from home and they can help out emergency clinics. And I just like, I'm not in a position to make that happen, but it just is so frustrating for me, you know, and I and I see like I'm in the Toronto area and there's like multiple referral centers and emergency clinics. I'm like, and some of them are owned by the same company. I'm like, you know, we have the technology to be like, hey, there's a surgeon at, you know, this hospital this weekend and that's where all the surgeries are going and there's someone who's doing ultrasound here and like direct the traffic a bit and saying this hospital doesn't have a wait right now and this one has a five hour wait, so we're gonna divert. And I just I find it frustrating because I'm a fixer and I find it very frustrating watching us not help ourselves with technology that is just right in front of us, you know, but it's, everyone's like, I'm too stressed to change. It takes too long to change. And there's a lot of things you could implement in veterinary medicine that actually make your life easier, but you just have to do it. And I think everyone just thought this whole COVID thing was going to be just really short. They're like, oh, I'm not going to learn telemedicine. I'm not going to do that. And it's like, here we are two years later. Anyway, that's just my soapbox about telemedicine because I am a telemedicine believer and I just I wish more people would adopt it because I think it would make their lives easier okay let's stay on this stoke box for a bit because I like the subject I think people would be interested to hear it so telemedicine being one thing you said something there I just want to pick up on you know there, there are a lot of things that would make a veterinarian's life easier what things do you see that you think aren't being adopted that you wish were being adopted more beyond telemedicine and I want to dive into telemedicine a bit more after that or what things do you use to make your life easier that now that you didn't use before? Hmm. Are there any products or tools or apps or technologies? So I will just caveat, I'm not the best person to talk about it, except for telemedicine. I do use it so I can talk from my own experience of using telemedicine. Yeah. So I'm just going to be like, but there's apps. There's some apps, Dave. I don't know. I don't know. There are like technology-wise. Okay, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to go on a tangent because this is. I think it's funny. VCA. I work for VCA, and they have a. Am I allowed to say that? Where I work. Yeah, like I mean, I assume VCA will send me like a big check for you saying it. So that's cool. I'll build them. That wouldn't happen. There's no sponsorship here. No. Okay. So my idea. I have to think of these. It was like it was early 2020, my idea that, because I had just been to, to Japan, my idea was a robot receptionist. And I was like, people would love a robot receptionist. You could check in with a robot receptionist. The robot can text you in the back, tell you that person's there. If you're not available, you can text them back. And like they, anyway, there's a whole thing about robot can bring you your meds. Robot doesn't take a lunch and robot doesn't gossip. Anyway, didn't even make the first cut with my robot receptionist and then COVID happened. I'm like, Hmm, you know, what would have been really helpful. <laughs> Some robots. I'm still bitter, Dave. 
really bitter. I could tell that. Yeah. People don't listen. So there, robots, we could have done that. And I actually, I'm kind of serious, right? Like, and people would think it was cool because kids love that. You know, you could have that. Instead of a person having to take drugs out, the robot could like deliver drugs out front, give the discharge summary, you know, if you've already talked to them. So check people in, all those things. So now that's an extreme example, but it's, I think it's cool. And robot can work 24-7. Robot doesn't go on vacation. Did you see that in Japan? No, robot robot doesn't. I did. I saw it in Japan. Actually, I saw one in Toronto too at a a hotel. And, uh, but I did see that. And I'm trying to think if I saw it at a vet clinic now and I'm, I may or may not have, and I can't remember. I just remember seeing it and like thinking, well, that would be really cool. Um, yeah. But I mean, the, besides robots, we have a lot of technology. So uh, ways to text clients, texting them pictures of their pets. Like, you know, I think it's, oh, I don't, I, I shouldn't say a brand, I guess, but there's like pet help desk. There's a bunch of them now that would make things a lot easier, better, easier ways to communicate with clients. And also, that's what clients want, right? They don't want to talk on the phone when they want to text. And they want pictures of their dog. And they want videos of their dog, especially if their dog is hospitalized and we're not letting them come in to see their dog. Most people that are have their dog, like their 12-year-old dog that has cancer that's in the hospital, they're not okay with that. Like I can, And I, I can kind of see that because I know how I would feel to not even know what my dog looks like after surgery or if they're okay. So yeah, those kind of technologies, I think, would decrease the number of phone calls, people being kind of annoying, like, cause they just, well, how's the dog now? How's the dog now? If they, you know, even like, a, I know there's some hospitals that have even like a little webcam that they can, people can look at their dog. Like, I think that's all great technology and it will calm people down. It will make them a lot less combative, a lot less anxious, and it will make the staff their life easier. So I think for me, it's more just the like telemedicine, trying to improve efficiency. And then for the emergency clinics, which are completely overloaded, I think in the UK too, I think everywhere, having a teletriage service that will kind of help direct people where they need to go. And because, you know, what was happening here initially was like people were just being told, like, you can sit in your car for six hours with a sick dog. Like, that's going to make someone crazy, right? 100%. I mean, there's no way. And why couldn't you just say, well, we'll text you when we have an opening? Like that, I guess that would be another technology that is obviously available is like, you can send someone home, you could have someone assess the dog, decide if they can wait or not. Obviously, if you're telling them to wait six hours, you haven't even assessed them, but you can assess them and say, I think your dog's okay to wait. You're on our waiting list. As soon as there's an availability, we're going to text you be here in 20 minutes. I mean, that would help a lot especially if they've already had a teletriage appointment and then you can kind of get people where they need to go so that kind of technology like it's all there you know and I don't know the names of all the you know again I'm not the best person for that but I know it exists and I know that I'm not in charge of implementing it and I find that frustrating so yeah this should be the sort of I mean it's the sort of it's the stuff of you know lovely dreams for operations people that should be getting after this and, and creating a new future if we put half the amount of time into fixing the, the now than we do of bagging out clients or, you know, yelling or complaining about the now, then we would probably have gotten it figured out by now. Let's talk telehealth because it's not controversial at all, but it's how we best implement this moving forward is where the conversation really ought to be and where it works. What have we learned? What have you learned through COVID about telehealth that you think, yes, this works if you had to give like a, you know, same more or less, where you're like, okay, what what stuff do we want to do 
this is working, let's keep doing that. What stuff has been, this works, we're not doing it anywhere near enough and it's game-changingly brilliant. And what stuff have we tried, think, actually, we've tried it, that just blows, let's stop doing that. Could you give a little review card on your, your viewpoint on telehealth yeah. from that perspective? Like, it would be from my point of view, but yeah, I love it for like referrals. I love it for that. I love being able to talk to the client. I love being able to see them. If I'm talking on the phone to a client, I don't feel like I know them. Like it's kind of like if you and I, because I can see you right now, we're both wearing pink. People can't see that, but it'd be like if I was talking on the phone, I wouldn't have felt like I met you. But for some reason, because of the video, I feel like I met you. And I feel like that with my clients. So I really like that. And I can also see their emotions. Like, you know, I see them crying and I love it. No, I don't mean that. But I can see if they're being affected. Whereas on the phone, if someone's crying on the phone, you may not be able to tell and you might just keep talking. You know what I mean? You might not give them a second if they need it because you can't tell that they're crying. You can't tell why they're being quiet. Whereas I can see, oh, they're upset. They need a second. I need to give them a moment. It's just more connection with a client. So that is a huge advantage for me. The other big advantage is that I can get everything organized. Like whatever tests I'm doing, it's usually a CT and a biopsy. That's the most common thing I would recommend. But I can tell them they know what's going to cost. If they need to travel, take time off work, they can kind of have a plan. And people are so anxious when they come to a specialist. And I would assume when they go to a veterinary, any veterinary visit, if they have a sick animal, they're very anxious. And so an initial telemedicine, when they're in their home, the animal's in their home, everyone's calm. Like they're not distracted by the dog. They know exactly what's going to happen. They have so many questions like, what's it going to cost? When's this going to happen? And you can answer all of that before they're in the car. And I find that really helpful. I find when they come in, they kind of know what's going on. And then the other thing, which I didn't, I never thought about, but it is great, is it's recorded. And so they have a copy of the video, which is great for lots of reasons, because I've had lots of clients call back. They want to go over everything again. And I, I won't do it now. I just say, you have a video. Why don't you go over the video? Because like, I don't have secret things about mast cell tumors that I, that I hold back <laughs> and that I wait for them to call me to clarify. Like I tell them everything and it's, you know, a lot of it's a spiel, right? It's the same thing. And so, and then it's specific to, tailored to their own pet, but it's not like there's something I didn't say that I wish I had. I, I, I tell them everything. So I ask them to review the video. I ask them to review it with their family so that, you know, if they say, oh, so-and-so wasn't for, there for the appointment, I'm like, that's okay you have a video and then I send them a written document as well. So that's a big advantage. And then for the odd, very difficult client, you know, think about if you have a consultation and it's 40 minutes, whatever it is, you know, you can never write down everything you said in that room ever, ever, ever. You never would be able to go back and scribe everything that you said in that room. And, you know, it's so frustrating for veterinarians when they're like, I told them that I told them this guy, I told them about these risks or whatever. And the client said, no, you didn't. And what are you going to do? But now there's a video and I actually had a, I shouldn't sound so excited, but I had a case that I had a, a, it didn't go anywhere, but I had a complaint to the CBO about a case and I was like, I got the tapes. Like I was like, so I, I like took the video console and I sent it to the CBO and I'm like, just so you know, like these are all the things I told the client and it turns out I have a video of that. And then they were like, thank you, Dr. Boston, (laughs) never heard from them again. So it protects you. It really protects you. I never thought of that, but it really does because it's like the consult is a lot longer than whatever you can potentially ever jot down in your file. So those are some big, you know, that's not related to COVID, but that's a huge advantage to doing a consultation that way. I find it more efficient. And then this will maybe not sound as nice. I like the connection, but it's not like no one can touch me. (laughs) And I mean, physically touch. Like 
I kind of like that I could, there's a bit of a separation and I, I will admit that I do, I prefer that. Like there's less intimacy. There's less weird comments that people make when you're in a room with them, especially if they, if you have any internet presence and they'll, they'll just say weird stuff. Like, I don't miss any of that. Like, I don't know if that's, you're like looking at me like, what is she talking? Do you know what I'm talking about? Or no, I can't tell. No, I, no, I, I do. Uh, but I, I do, <laughs> but I kind of, I built practices based on that very thing because I wanted people to be a little bit doughy eyed and like, oh my goodness, there's the guy in the videos and everything like that. Because the level of trust and awareness before that was there. I'm like totally fine with and massively extroverted so i don't mind it I but too. i still i get what you're saying when it was like it's weird when people fucking know you and they don't know you at all and that's a little disconcerting and that can go sideways yeah i just find also like some of the weird things that clients do in a room like suddenly like they're hoinking up their shirt and showing you a scar from their cancer or like i don't know does that <laughs> is it just me i don't know i think that might just be you yeah i didn't get that really is it just me <laughs> Come on, other people have had that, Dave. People are going to put in the comments. I think so. I now want people right to, now. to message us with what, what weird shit clients in that room. have <laughs> done, what happened in the room. This actually could be a different podcast of like just what's the New weirdest podcast. shit that ever happened to you <laughs> in room? Okay, in I, room. I feel like that, that has to be a question. Right, let's start this now. What is the weirdest shit that a client ever pooled in a room with you i practice in florida so oh boy florida man i know i had a real florida man and he lived in the keys on a boat he came in and he, he told me that he he was in the militia or something in the army but he wasn't he was like counter i don't know anyway he was like a spy but like the spies the spy on the spies i can't remember what that's called anyway he had this whole story about that how he had been a spy he used to wear like black exam room gloves all the time and dog tags yet had never been in the army because he had and then we like you know this is the thing that I found being at a teaching hospital working with gen z's and millennials like I always say this I would just go to the back and like start imitating the client or make you know just make a joke about oh this client whatever the students google them they will google them and they'll be like Dr. Boston (laughs) this guy was convicted of like trying to kill I think President Obama and Bush I was like oh He's bipartisan. That's great. But anyway, he did. He he really was in prison for trying to kill people. And then he tried to kill his neighbor. Anyway, he wanted to be in a clinical trial. I was running. I said, the dog wasn't eligible. And then he told me he was going to get me deported. And he said, my wife is going to get you deported. And she says, you're a bitch. And I was like, okay. And then I just, I just remember, like, I shook his hand with his crazy glove on his hand. And I went, you know what, Raymond, like, there's worse things than getting sent back to Canada, because I was just thinking someone, please send me back to Canada right now. So that was really weird that that happened. And we had to get the police in to help get him out of the thing, because I was scared that something was gonna, something bad was gonna happen. So that was weird. And then I had a client who was like trying to hit on this Italian uh, veterinarian who was visiting, and she was super creepy. And I had to tell her off, like, I had to tell her to stop it, because he was really uncomfortable. And and uh, so I was like, I went in like a bit all good. I went in a bit hot, Dave. I was like, and I had the student with me and I went like in and I was like, you have to stop talking to the, our visitor. Like everyone deserves respect. You can't talk to any staff member, any student, anyone like that, or you are not doing surgery on your dog. And I was really like aggressive. And she went, okay. And then she said, I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> 
And then she goes, I mean, ma'am. And then I just went, it's fine. We have to go now. And then she said, will you stay and pray with me? Which also just throws me because I'm Canadian. That doesn't really happen in Canada. But I was so thrown by this request. I said, no, I have to go. You have to pray with yourself. And I just turned and walked away. And the student was just like, what is happening? So that happened. And then I had another client who used to, yeah, kind of badass, a little mean, but she needed it. She needed a little. Anyway, I'm just gonna, I could tell you another story. I'll stop. No, tell me the other story. Tell me the other story. The other one was this guy who, this, <laughs> the students Googled him. He was super weird, like super, super weird. And apparently he was on the registered sex offender list and he had given, he was kind of known for giving his address as like it was a Walmart parking lot that he was giving. That was because you have to check in. I don't really know how it works, but you have to check in. And so he was in the news for giving Walmart as his home address. And like, he was so weird. And the students, you know, they Google and they come and tell me, they're like, Dr. Boston, he's a, reg- he's a registered sex offender. And so I'm trying to be politically correct. Like, I'm like, well, sometimes like people get on that list because they just urinated in public and it's not, you know, like some people like they're homeless or, or housing insecure and they can't. So I was trying to like, just say sometimes people end on that list and it doesn't mean anything. And I said, but then I turned and I'm like, almost like this devil voice. I'm like, but you could never be in a room alone with him <laughs> ever. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Florida was fun. It was a good time. Maybe that's why I like telemedicine. You're making me, I'm having a breakthrough right now. That's why I like telemedicine. Cause I've had those weird, I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I need to go back to that. I'm good right here on my laptop. Do you want to be part of a positive change in veterinary medicine? That's the question we're asking in our landmark veterinary employment, engagement and retention survey, which is now open. Maybe you're one of those people who are struggling, or on the other hand, you might be really enjoying your work and practice. No matter how things are going, we'd like to hear from you so we can build a clear picture of the state of the profession. We'll be writing and publishing a report based on the study findings so that everyone involved with veterinary medicine has access to a body of evidence that answers some of the key questions about what we're getting right and what we're getting wrong. If you're someone who cares about the future of veterinary medicine, then we'd now like to invite you to complete the survey. Your voice matters and it should be heard. It won't take long to complete, and the more people who take it, the more reliable and influential the results will be. You'll also be entered into our prize draw, where you could win a selection of prizes each week, including a 50 buck Amazon gift voucher, 10 Starbucks coffee cards, and five copies of my ebook, So Your Vet, Now What? To take the survey, head now to vetxinternational.com forward slash veer. That's V E E R you'll be contributing to a better future for veterinary medicine when you do. I think you're actually, what I like about this is you sort of answered two questions at once because I was going to ask you why you, you know, you were tenured in the various institutions that you've um, worked and perhaps institutions, the right word for the time in Florida. And I was going to ask why you went back to Canada, but I think you obviously you got deported. <laughs> by I got deported. So, yeah, let's spread that days. narrative. Yeah, right. I miss Canada. I I loved working at Florida. It was I did. It was a great job working at University of Florida. Was a great job, and it was a beautiful hospital. And I worked with some amazing yeah. people. It was like kind of time to be back in Canada. Yeah, that's why I left Florida. But yeah, it's crazy. I did leave two tenured jobs. That's not very smart, is it, Dave? Well, I don't know about that, but I thought that was 
interesting because that's a word that most people are dying to hear in their job. And, uh, you know, you, you've moved on twice from such moments. And it actually ties in quite nicely to a question. I, I wanted to ask you a bit more about how your career took you in, down the route of surgical oncology. Like what were the sort of pivot points or inflection points that sort of pinballed you in that direction? Or was it a straight shot? No, it wasn't. I always think because I, I spent so much time around a primary care setting as a kid, like literally as a kid, that I think when I graduated, I just wanted to do something different. And I, I was really, I, I mean, I think this is so, so classic, like you're 22 or however old, 21. And I was like, I'm going to be a wildlife vet. <laughs> like, you have no idea what that even means. Like, I think I'm going to move to Africa. Like, like it my means dog, being poor for the rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, I had a dog whose name was Sotsi, which is like, because I was going to go to South Africa. It was like a, anyway, it's like an African word. So I was just living that weird like that that's what I was going to do but then I it kind of occurred to me that I probably should have been a biologist you know what I mean I was like "Mm, veterinary like a clinical veterinarian I'm not really sure anyway so I was I kind of and I lost a bit of hope I had spent some time in some zoos and they were spaying all the lions and I was just kind of like oh you know it was just my little 21 year old heart was broken by this all so and then I kind of discovered surgery so went on the surgical path and then I just had a mentor who was into surgical oncology I think some of it is the creativity like tumors just happen where they happen. And so the surgeries are always different and the reconstruction is different. And so I liked that. I don't know. And my resident mates generally didn't like that stuff. So I sort of got more of those cases that are like Sarah likes those cases. So it kind of worked out that way. And uh, I mean, I still love other types of surgery, but I right now I'm just focused only on surgical oncology. So I don't know if that's a good answer. It was kind of, it wasn't random. Yeah. So one kind of surgery, it strikes me, where you don't cut along, you know, you don't cut dotted line A to B and there's a process to follow, you know, orthopedics to an extent, you're having to sort of wing it. But surgical, like oncology, like any shit could be coming your way pretty much in all sorts of weird places. Well, there's like a lot of medicine in surgical oncology. That's what I like. There's a lot of medicine still. Like you still have to work, like really work up your patients, see what's going on. This is going to sound awful too. I'm just sounding awful today, but it's not as much the clients as I thought. That's one thing the pandemic taught me. Like I love working with my patients and I'm happy to do that with them in the back. Did you think it was more about the clients before? I thought it was more balanced. And now like, cause clients can be lovely. They can be neutral. They can be horrible and it doesn't matter as long as the dogs are good and the cats are nice and they usually are. And if they're not, they're just scared. And I can understand that. Like, it's just a weird thing I learned about myself during the pandemic that I was like, Oh, I really am like, and it's not that I don't like people. I, I, you know, it's just, I don't let it affect me. Like if I have a great connection with a client, cool, that's icing. If I don't, it's okay. As long as I help them and they feel like I help them and I help their animal, like that's fine too. If they're horrible, I'm probably not going to treat them. I'm at the point now where I, I don't do that. (laughs) If my spidey senses go off, I'm like, nope, we're not doing that. A lot of people struggle with carrying the baggage of, you know, if somebody's mean. We surveyed a bunch of graduates and asked, what are your energizers? What are your drainers? And mean clients are by miles the thing that drain people. But really appreciative clients are the things that also by miles energize people. And, they, you know, we like the best as, as veterinarians. How have you uh, over the years, like, have you always been quite able to brush off the, no. you know, sometimes the, the nastier things that clients bring to the table? 
Okay. Yeah. Tell me about the journey there. Any young vets listening to this, like, what do you do now? Yeah, I will say I had a client, it was right when I had COVID. So it was the beginning of January. And it was like, it was like one of the worst clients I can remember having in any kind of recent memory. Like, and she was a, a psychiatrist. And I felt like she was in my head. Like it was, it was like, without being too dramatic, I was like, I think this is like psychological torture. Like some of the stuff she said to me, and I just, it was so horrible. And she was like, you're just making up COVID as an excuse. I'm like, I literally have COVID. Can you expand on that a little bit? Okay. Her issue was her dog had cancer and she came through emergency. She saw a medical oncologist. This is like a miracle. This is over Christmas. Like she saw a medical, I think she came in, I can't remember exactly, but it was like just before Christmas. She saw a medical oncologist, I think 10 days later, like, and we had these crazy closures because of uh, COVID. We had like, that was when we had to take everyone out for 10 days if they were even exposed. So it was just decimated our staff. But somehow this dog got through and then it had a workup with medical oncology and then it came to see me for surgery. And I think I had her booked for surgery within 10 days. So it actually was, even in non-COVID times, for a case going through the referral system, it was actually it was actually better than average and it was pretty fast. But it for her, it wasn't fast enough and it was all our fault. And And she just, she kept saying she was going to sue us like, I'm going to do a very big surgery with actually a, a very high complication, right? I'm not going to say which it was because I, I don't want to identify it, but a surgery that a lot of people won't do because of the complication rate. And I sent her the paper because she's a doctor. I sent her the paper, like, this is how high the complication is, like 50% complication rate. I was like, this is how the complication rate is. Yeah. And she just kept saying she was going to sue our hospital because we were too slow. And I'm like, well, we're not too slow. And I, so what happened to me right during that time, I was still doing my telemedicine appointments, but I had COVID and I had a, a LASIK surgery that didn't go well. So I couldn't see out of my right eye. <laughs> so I was not working that week. Shit. And I was still trying to do my telemedicine appointment, which I kind of regret now, but I was like, oh, I, I'm at home. I can do telemedicine. You know, I can't type. <laughs> I can't see. I can't drive, but I can do telemedicine appointments. So I was trying to do this and it was just like... I'm going to look like a pirate as I do it. Oh my God. Yeah, it was crazy. So... But my manager backed me up. I just said, I can't do this surgery on someone who's threatening to sue our hospital because like the surgeries I do have just by nature, like they will have a relatively high complication rate. And I can't start out with someone who's saying like, you're all terrible and <laughs> I'm going to sue you. I was just like, I can't do it. But that person really affected me. And I think it's because they were a psychiatrist. And I think it just like, it was just like some of the stuff she said was so mean, but so measured. And she wasn't yelling, but she was just like, and she kept going, I've taped all our conversations. And I was like, well, so have I, because it's telemedicine, <laughs> turns out. Anyway, so yeah, I don't know, like, but I do, but the thing I think for young veterinarians listening, if you're getting a sense that client doesn't trust you, or this is something I sort of had to learn, you don't have to treat them. Like, it's not a prison, like no one's forcing you. And if you don't have a good relationship, if you don't have a good veterinary client patient relationship, you actually shouldn't treat them. Because what are you doing? You're just going to put yourself in a position where you you know, if you're doing surgery, if you're doing a medical procedure, there's complications that can happen. If that client already doesn't like you, doesn't trust you, doesn't trust your hospital, doesn't trust your staff, if it doesn't go well, we're it's just by nature of what our relationship needs to be, they, there needs to be trust. So I am much quicker to dismiss those clients. And yeah, it sucks when you have to do that. But I think we have to be quicker to say, you know what, I this is not an appropriate way to act. You're not treating my staff well. If things don't go well, it's not going to be good. So you're going to need to find someone that you trust. And if they don't trust me, that's okay. But I can't change that. And I can't put myself in that position because it's just going to go 
in a bad place. So I'm quicker to kind of recognize when things are not going to go well and just get myself out of the situation. So that would be my advice, but it totally affects me. I mean, it's very upsetting when people treat us like that. Do you have a a way of discerning and a way of telling people, dis, you know, dismissing clients? Uh, so maybe that's the first thing. How do you dismiss clients without escalating into World War Three? And how do you discern a client who has a genuine grievance and is upset for good reasons, if you know what I mean? Like they have a, yeah. a genuine axe to grind versus people who are genuinely assholes yeah. and, or psychos or people who we just we just don't have the time for. I think like I, I usually... Well, always, no, not usually. I would always have my manager be involved in those discussions and sort of decide who's going to have that discussion. And my manager is really supportive. Like I will say, and that's really important. I mean, we don't have to do sur- like we don't have to do anything, right? You don't have to do any surgery. This this took me a while to realize this. Like I'm like, I don't have to do any surgery. Like I can choose for any reason that I don't want to do that surgery, and I don't have to, right? Like. So that's important to kind of keep in mind. But you're right, there has to be it has to be within reason because sometimes people do have a legitimate complaint and you need to make it right for them. So, you know, I think it's it is about kind of bringing in a third party. So for me it's my manager having them listen to the client, try to find a solution, but ultimately if they're being abusive, that's a red line, like they're that's it. Yeah, yeah. we don't do everything perfectly, right? Yeah, like the client there's a complaint were, and there's abuse, isn't there? Yeah, so yeah, I can't remember the third, the last part of your question, but that's that's kind of where I'm at now, and it it took me a while to get there. I think it was in Florida though. I was like, oh yeah, I don't have to, I don't have to do this. And I remember the first time I did dismiss a client, they were like, you know, because I'm I'm a subspecialist, so people would seek out, you know, my care for cancer surgery for their pet. And this woman was like, but you're the best one. I was like, yep, <laughs> still not gonna do it. Like. Yeah. So why did you treat the best one like that? That wasn't very smart. So, I mean, I'm not trying to be a jerk about it, but I'm just, it was just, I remember the reaction was very funny. It was like, no, I'm going to, and we had another client we had to dismiss because they were abusive to one of my staff members. And he was like, well, I'll just apologize. <laughs> my manager was like, no, like you can apologize if you want to. We're still not going to do the surgery. Right. But it was just very funny that people think like, I'll just, I'll just make it right. It's like, well, sometimes you can't, you know, sometimes it's that trust and that relationship is broken and you have to find a different one. So. Yeah. And being okay with that. I want to spend some time and I, I want to change gears a little bit here and talk about the, there's a quote from you and I don't know where the quote comes from exactly with social media, but it, the quote is, I got into comedy because of writing and I got into writing because I had thyroid cancer. And I think what I'd love to do is to actually jump to the start point of that, which is the the thyroid cancer, and then sort of walk forwards toward the comedy, if you're comfortable to talk about it. And that's probably a, a good place to bring in your book, Lucky Dog, because I'd love to talk about that as well. Yeah. Let me give you a question because I don't think I gave you a question there. But let me give you a question is, tell me the motivation, uh, the reason for writing Lucky Dog. And actually, tell me about the title as well. Okay, so I just started writing. Like, I found a mass in my neck. I was really sure it was a thyroid tumor. I ultrasounded my neck with my husband's, uh, he's a large animal vet, with his ultrasound machine. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's definitely thyroid carcinoma. 
I even documented it was growing. And then I love Canada. People think because of my book that I don't love the healthcare system or I don't love Canada. I love socialized medicine, but it was just too slow. It was so slow. And because of that, I started just writing because I was so frustrated because I was so sure I had a thyroid tumor and no one was listening to me. But yet it was absurd. And I find absurd things hilarious. So I just started writing and I was kind of writing for my friends because I have like friends all over the world, literally, because I've moved around so much, which is wonderful and awful at the same time. But I was like sending out emails like, hey, this is what's going on, because I didn't want to have to tell, you know, everyone sequentially. So I was but I was making it funny. So and then I was like realized after a period of time, I was like, oh, I could actually maybe do something. And I wasn't sure I was like, maybe I'll make it into a blog. I don't really know. But it was funny, I guess, like it, it was I realized that there's that I shouldn't say I realize that because it's always been a part of me. All my lectures always have jokes in them. Like there's a performative side to them, right? And I and I love humor, bringing humor in even when I'm teaching. So it wasn't new, but I, you know, it was new from the perspective of trying to create a creative work. Yeah, so I had a very lucky meeting with a, I'm not going to go into that too much, but I, I did kind of get lucky that I met an author to help me get my book uh, in the right hands, I guess I'll just say. So that's very frustrating. I know when people say they want to write a book, and I'm like, oh, well, you just, you get cancer. <laughs> and then you write about it, and then you meet a famous author at a gala. Done. Book published. So, but I would say, you know, one thing I would say from that is you need to be ready for luck, right? Like, it was luck, but you need to be ready and be like, you know, if that publishing house is like, hey, we want to see your stuff, you better have your stuff. So that is where you can help with the luck, <laughs> but you can't make the luck happen. You can't make the lucky breaks happen. Yeah. So that was an amazing experience. I mean, really life-changing for me to be able to create something and realize I love humor writing. And from there I was in Florida. I started taking online classes at Second City because there wasn't really anything in person in Florida that was kind of like improv or uh, sketch writing or onion writing. So I started doing all that and just, and realized I love that. And then I moved to Toronto and I started taking classes like in person at Second City, which was cool. And then I think I'm taking this further than you asked, but I'm just going to keep going. And then I uh, started doing stand up comedy. And I realized I love that. And then I decided to go to comedy college. So that's what I'm doing that right now. So it just kind of was this evolution of like, recognizing that part of myself and, and kind of leaning into it, I guess. And I think the pandemic was part of that, too, that I was like, yeah, I'm just going to I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow this and see what happens. And I have no idea what I'm going to do with it. So, which is totally fine because everything else in my life, I've been like residency, fellowship, you know, I know it's I, tenure. I know exactly what I'm going to do. And this is like, I honestly don't know, but it's super fun. <laughs> There's not an end goal as such. There's a a journey, a, a process that you're working through with it. Yeah. It's not a vocational ticket, Dave. There you go. I mean, that's not going to pay the bills and it's like totally not going to get you anywhere near that 20% mortgage rate. No, it's true. Yeah, I know. But I also like, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to bring it back into veterinary medicine. And I kind of want, want to dig into it a little bit more if, if we could. There's a lot of ground you just covered there. And I kind of like want to pull you back in. Like I'm as you were describing it, I'm like, you just very matter of factly described. You're like, oh, I've think I've got a thyroid curse like how did that feel in the moment like that whole thing like what was some of the process you went through and also I'm kind of like I want to jump into the comedy because you, you do it a lot and I think that's how you came to my attention was and I don't know if it was perhaps our mutual friend Andy Rourke that mentioned you or if I was 
just aware, I think I got asked to write an article, or not write an article, but to contribute to an article on comedy. And you and Andy are much more full bore, like you are productive comedians. I would say I'm at very least participative and enjoy and consume a lot more than I would deliver. But like you, like comedy is a vehicle to deliver a more serious message and keep people's attention. I've only done one stand-up comedy class, which was genuinely the most wonderful and terrifying fucking minute and a half of my life. So I'm kind of like keen to dive into your experience going into stand-up because it's like you're not you're not just using a gag to keep an audience at a vet conference and everyone thinks, oh, that's really funny. You're so funny and that's a great presentation. Like, no, these are people who are, it's aggressive and they want you to laugh, make them laugh, tickle their funny bone or you suck and you get booed off. So that's yeah. kind of like, if performing is or doing a talk is more frightening for most humans than actually being dead, then stand-up comedy is like the tip of the spear of the terrifyingness of public speaking. So talk me through the sort of journey to get there. And is there something in the, is there something unlocked or unwoken you with you know, really facing your own mortality and being diagnosed with what sounds like, you know, like I, I don't know anything about thyroid carcinoma beyond it sounds shit and it's probably quite aggressive. So how did it change you to go through that experience? And did it change course for you in terms of unleashing this creative force within you? Yeah, well, I should say I'm fine. And everyone likes to say thyroid cancer is good cancer, which I, I, I like to talk about that when I do stand up because I'm like, you know, what else is great is not having cancer. But when you have a cancer that is you know, curable or has really long-term remissions. Everyone wants to make things nice and be like, it's good, isn't it? I'm like, it is so good. So good. But I'm totally fine. I mean, I am, I'm fine. I don't have a thyroid. That's a bit of a, a drag sometimes, but I mean, in the scheme of things, I'm doing great. I think probably there is a bit of an element of like, when you go through something like that, you do kind of want to just reevaluate, like, cause you know, people say, oh, if, if you found out you had a year or five years to live, like, would you do something differently? most people would. And then I'm like, well, maybe we should just try a little bit to live like that and try to keep in mind, like, it doesn't matter. It's like one year, five year, 20 years, like we're dying, we're going to die, right? Like it's, you're not here forever. And sort of, I think not in a morbid way, but just keeping an awareness of that is a good thing because it just maybe helps you live a bit more how you want to. So yeah, I mean, I think for me, I'm like, I just really like doing this. I don't have a plan, but I like it. And I like making people laugh. I would agree the veterinary audience, like I'm sure you've experienced this, Andy and me and other lecturers who bring humor into their lectures, like especially if I'm lecturing about cancer surgery. So, I mean, I think if people go to your lecture, Andy's lecture, like maybe they expect edutainment. <laughs> Does that make sense? But for me, like they don't. And so like if I make a joke, it's like almost like people are surprised that I made a joke. And so they laugh. And so it's an easier crowd <laughs> than a comedy club, like a comedy club. Yeah, you better make people laugh. Whereas in a vet conference, like even if you just like make two jokes, people come up to you after and they'll be like, you're hilarious. Like <laughs> you should do comedy. But yeah, in a comedy club, you need to have like, they say six to eight laughs a minute. Like it's like boom, 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 boom. Or you're not doing, and I'm, I'm not, I'm still learning, right? I'm not a professional comedian, but I'm still learning how to, how to do it. I attack it like I attack everything. Like I study it. It's a craft. It's like, you know, I do my homework. I'm like a total nerd in my comedy college and all my classes that I'm taking. You asked me if it was terrifying. I don't think I'm scared of things I should be scared of. So I think that sometimes I just don't have that. Like, I don't know if that's a thing, but I just, people are like, that's terrifying. And I don't, for some reason, I don't, it doesn't terrify me. So 
Because I think I'm like, what's, what's the worst what thing What do you happen? find terrifying? People don't laugh. The situation in Ukraine is terrifying. I don't know. Like, that's the thing. Like, if you put it in perspective, like, dying of cancer is terrifying. People not laughing at you when you try to make a joke. That's unfortunate. It's not terrifying. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, well, you could try again, I guess. That wasn't funny. Do something else. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't affect me that way. So, but I've done a lot of lecturing. So I don't know if that's part of it. I kind of got through whatever that was. So comedy college, I have two more weeks of school. I am in my first year. It's a two-year program. And it's great. Like, it's so great. It's been a lot because I've been working as a surgical oncologist still 60%. And then full-time, even though I call it clown school, it's still, it's quite busy. And I, I've noticed, like, sometimes it's hard because, like, I go, I go to work. <laughs> Sorry, when I, do you have classes with a big flower on your lapel that you squirt in each faces? No, but Stuff I have like a that. clown nose. I'll send you a picture. <laughs> clown yeah. school. Yeah. yeah. Do you? Clown school. Oh, no, it's literally oh, yeah, clown please. school. I yes. want, can I have that one for the podcast header? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll find Done. you a nice picture. So what does class look like at, at comedy school? Like, what does a morning at comedy <laughs> school look like? I'm freaking jealous. Like, I'm, what, can I come to comedy school? Yeah, come on over. Okay, so there is physical comedy, improv, sketch, writing. We had, like, social media class, stand-up comedy class, acting. And history of comedy. Those are my classes this year. It's great because they all bleed into each other, right? Like improv and stand up, and you know, Andy does a lot of improv, and improv is great for public speaking because you got to be like, yeah, yeah, my slides aren't working, or someone's not listening to me, or whatever. You, you can't get all worried about it. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think I actually think I, you know, I've said this to Andy too. Like every veterinarian, every veterinary student should take an improv class. It will change your brain. It will like. It will rewire your brain. It will make you a better listener. It will make you a better team member. It will make you be able to roll with things because veterinarians I find are super binary, right? And I found that during the pandemic, it's like, it has to be this way or this way. And like, there's all this gray of how we could fix things or how we could get a robot or do other things. And, and veterinarians can't do it. Like they, they're so binary in their thinking. And like, I swear to God, I think our profession would be much better off. And maybe that's what I'm going to do with this. Maybe I'm just going to cruise around and make people do improv classes with me. But I do think it would really help our profession a lot so let's do that i can see it now i can see the sarah boston battle bus driving all over the world doing improv classes like you just rock up you know like how you do so ce fun. events and you would have like there's alison lambert here in the uk who does like she does like customer service training we're like fuck it like ringing the improv comedy yeah. comedy bus to practices all around the world and just tickle their funny so bones fun. up and down the United States and Canada. and It's like a world tour. I'm going to do it. Can I drive the bus? Yeah, you're on the bus. You're doing it. We're doing it. Absolutely. Yes. yes. <laughs> then I'll do like, I just do like one surgery wherever I go. I'll do one surgery, improv, go to a comedy bar. That'll be my day. And then we'll just keep going. No, but I actually, I genuinely think, because I've no... There's this really stupid game in my improv class. All year we've played it. You have to like, it makes your brain, like you have to tap someone or say their name. Anyway, it, it sounds really stupid, but I can never win because my okay. brain is so binary. But I actually won the game for the first time like two weeks ago. And I was so excited because I was like, I changed my brain. Like improv changes the way your brain is wired. Neuroplasticity. Yeah. Okay, so it. I want to ask you for listeners, 
Give us an improv class. Can we play? I've never done improv. Is there a game we can play that could be useful to listeners? Or is there something you can teach us that is like a comedy 101? <laughs> Not to be funny, but to expand ourselves that much. Okay, I should have prepared for this, but I can think of two things. Okay, one, you could just do it with a group of friends, maybe, or maybe people you work with. So there's three things. Someone can make a suggestion like, hey, do you want to go for lunch? You can say no because, you can say yes but, or you can say yes and. And so the whole thing with improv is you say yes and. Okay, so do it. Ask me if if I want to do something. And can I make up the something? Yeah, yeah, it's just made up. Okay, let's do a podcast. Yes, but I'm really busy. So anyway, you can practice responding different ways. If you say yes, but you're saying no to your partner, basically, because you're telling them, oh, yeah, but it's not going to work. If you say no, you're obviously saying no. If you say yes, and then I can say to you, yes, and we're going to develop an improv program for veterinarians and veterinary students. It's going to be amazing. So the yes, and is like accepting your partner's offer and then building on it. So it's really interesting, though, if you practice like answering in those ways to people that like you'll realize that if, if you do anything except for yes and you're shutting someone down and so if you think about team meetings or at times at work when a, an employee comes with a suggestion and maybe it's not a good suggestion but sometimes you got to listen to people and try to build on it and make it better so that's kind of what improv is it's about listening the other thing is we always do is like everyone does this not veterinarians just every human being like when you're listening to someone you're not listening you're trying to think of what you want to say back so there's there's games where you do like one word back and forth or you tell a story with only one word and it stops you from controlling the narrative and it stops you from like overthinking it because you can't because you can't make your contribution to the sentence until you hear what the person ahead of you says so there's a lot of kind of games like that will kind of play with your elasticity of your brain and help you not be like planning everything out and realizing you've got to listen we've got to listen to our clients right we've got to listen to our staff members we've got to listen to our coworkers. And we can't just have in our head, no, I'm doing this thing. I don't care what you say. I already know what I'm doing. It doesn't matter what you tell me. So that's, yeah, that's where improv is actually really powerful for team building. And like, so I'm an improv convert, but I, it is important, I think. So, and we're missing it in veterinary medicine. Like, it sounds like, yeah, the battle bus is, that's the next business venture for you is there is tax deductible bus fare around the world. And making it better with neuroplasticity and comedy yeah you know for me wellness like I laugh about this I can't tell people like do yoga do this take a break because I'm not good at it myself and so it's not really fair for me to tell people I'm still in clinical practice so I think I have some basis but I'm not perfect as far as my own wellness I get you know overtired I get stressed I don't always take good care of myself but I laugh all the time and I try to make my coworkers laugh and I try to find humor in like that's what the cage liner is like I try to find humor in some of the crazy stuff we go through so that's my wellness that's what I can contribute to the veterinary profession I I can't contribute the other stuff because I'm not good at it and it, it would be fake if I told people like that I did yoga every day and I meditate I wish I did I just don't I don't have time right I think that's a really strong message though because you've found your thing and it's your outlet and it, it's partly you're, you're not just the vet but you also have this other part of you that you're able to to use as an outlet that's a rich source for material I'm quite sure but it's also it takes you away from from just being a vet and that provides you know balance some 
equilibrium in life, which I'm, I'm sure everybody listening, you know, it's it's about finding out what our individual thing might be, whether it's comedy or exercise or yoga or whatever that thing is. So I think it's a it's a freaking awesome message. Okay, I'm gonna because time's wing chariot as always hurries near. And you're being incredibly generous with your time. So I wanted to move into my rapid fire questions is the kind way of saying it, but like basically dumb short questions that you could answer however you like and we'll see where they go. So I'm kind of like, these are my favorite questions. Listeners always have their favorite ones of these. And so I apologize if I forget your favorite one. And if you don't like that, get your own podcast and ask your own questions. So what was the best piece of advice you've ever and you can choose whichever way you go. Best piece of advice you ever gave or best piece of advice you ever received. Or you can do both. Yes, and. so Yes, and. Well, I have two, and they're both, one's from my father and one's from one of my best friend's father. So if you want help with something, if you want someone to help you, if you just email them or ask them, like, I need help, they will not necessarily be that open to helping you. So you're always best to ask them for advice. Like, does that make sense? You know? Hey, can I get some advice? It does. I'm thinking of starting a improv group. Not, I need help. I need you to do this thing for me. So there are people a lot more responsive to asking for their advice. And then another piece of advice that's my, one of my best friend's father said is like, make a decision. And if it was the wrong decision, like make another decision, like just, you know, like keep going through because, you know, I've made some decisions where I can look back and be like, oh, should I have left that tenure job? And should I have done this? And I'm not without regrets about some of my decisions, but there's nothing I can do about it, right? Like I, I'm here. So I just have to use the information I have and just keep moving forward. Because who leaves a tenured faculty job, Dave? That's insane. Twice. 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 <laughs> In two countries. What? And never takes a sabbatical. That's huh? It. Yeah. What? This is my sabbatical now, but no one's paying for it. Why are people even listening to what I have to say? It doesn't even make sense. I have nothing, obviously, nothing important to say. <laughs> this might actually come back to the, what was the worst piece of advice you've ever given or received? Oh. Drop the tenure. No, I do know. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't regret it. I honestly don't. I don't regret it. I think people get too caught up in that, honestly. I, I'm, I'm teasing as well. In that academic world, they're like, I only do this because it helps me get tenure. I'm like, you should do it because it's interesting or you shouldn't be in academia. That's my two cents. Can we talk about that for a little second? Like that, that yeah. one sentence is just a really depressing sentence that people, I'm doing something I hate so I can get tenure so I can keep doing the thing I can hate for the rest of my entire life ever till I retire. That yeah. is sad. Fortunately, the saddest sentence ever. It's more like don't do this thing because this won't get you credit. And it's like this whole thing with the tenure because now I've done it twice. I've applied for tenure twice and you have to like mark all the things you're doing. And I guess my advice to anyone who's thinking of academia or is in academia is do what you like, like, and it has to be enough. And if it's not, then don't do that thing, right? Like, but yeah, I've had people give me advice like, oh, you shouldn't do this committee or this thing because it, you won't get credit for it and you should do this thing. And I'm like, I've never done that. I'm like, eh, I feel like doing this research and I feel like, you know, I love mentoring, love, love, love mentoring house officers and students. That is like one of my loves of my life and my career so like I'll always want to do that but I don't do it because it gets me anywhere I just do it because I like it and I like watching like my current intern I'm so proud of her Dr. Paolo shout out to her she just matched for a residency at Colorado State University and I'm so thrilled and proud and like that's why I do that you know 
that's it, not for anything on a piece of paper or I just do it because it's really cool to help someone along their way. So yeah, I'd say if you're in academia, like just find the things that you're good at and you like and the other stuff, it will come like your tenure will come. And if it doesn't, you probably shouldn't be in academia. This is not that hard to get tenure. I did it twice. And then I left. Oh, well, it's okay. It'll be okay. Someone will hire me again. Dude, you don't need to get hard. You got bus. Like, I thought we covered this. Improv like, bus, yeah. That's what we're talking about. Co- I'll get tenure on the improv bus. Is what exactly. I'm gonna do. <laughs> Sorry, that totally took us away from the worst piece of advice you ever I know. Uh, gave It was or a bit received. by design. Well, actually, it might be that people telling me what to do to get tenure. That wasn't good advice. I'm trying to think what other advice. Oh, actually, I was laughing about this. I was laughing with some of my friends about things like men used to say to women. You know, when you're trying to navigate your way through residencies and stuff and I had a uh, two pieces of advice that were bad when I was in first year university we had to meet with a faculty member to tell them what we wanted to do when we grew up and it was an entomologist and he told me don't be a veterinarian you're just going to be a mechanic for animals and you should be an entomologist <laughs> so that was bad advice I did not follow that advice and then when I was trying to decide what residency I wanted to do a veterinary ophthalmologist who was a man when I was an intern told me you should be an ophthalmologist. It's a great career for a woman, <laughs> which was like, made me not want to do it, to be honest, because it was just, it was like, wow, like, it's a, so that was not well received, that advice. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be a surgeon, men. <laughs> but having said that all, more advice, like when I have like a 25 year old vet student who comes to talk to me and says they want to be a surgeon, you got to think about all the things you want to do in your life, right? Like, you've got to figure out, do you want to have kids? You you know, do you have a partner? Are they going to be willing to move? Because it's really a lot. And so like I found I would talk to students about that and, and probably talk to women differently than men because, you know, just the biology is different because I think, you know, I've watched my friends put everything off until they're in their thirties and it's not as easy to have children. So like, I do think you've got to kind of sketch out your whole life. And I think things are changing for the better as far as that goes, but it is really hard. Like it's hard for women to kind of balance all that. So I mean, I don't have kids, so I haven't had to do that, but there is a lot of challenges. The burden is more on women. Hopefully that's changing. But so I don't don't know. But I didn't receive that advice very well, I will say. At the time when I was whatever, 23 years old, I was like, no one's going to tell me. I'm not going to be an ophthalmologist. Like, I could be an ophthalmologist right now, Dave. Have a nice life. Not have been on call all the time, but I showed him. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a favorite book? that has made a big impact on you that you've read in the last year? Are you a big reader? Mm. You know, I wish I was a bigger reader and I have been a bigger reader. This year has been weird for just because it's like comedy. So I'm going to sound like a, like someone who doesn't read. You can go beyond a year then. Yeah. I love the author Miriam Taves. She's a Canadian author and she has a lot of books that I love, but all my puny sorrows is amazing. And so, I mean, I love, I'd love the way she writes. And I would say the reason I love the way she writes is because she just, it's not really stream of consciousness, but she has a really strong voice and you can hear her voice. And I think that I read her work right when I was going to start writing. And I was like, you can write like that. Like, I was like, I don't know if people could write like that. Like she just, I don't know if anyone's, if you've read her work. What genre does she write? It's like novels. And she's a, she grew up as a Mennonite in Manitoba. So it's like a lot of that, but it's very funny. She's hilarious. Like she's super funny, even though, but she's also quite dark. So I think all those things I like, but she just has this really strong, really strong narrative voice. Um, But I think where it impacted me was my writing. I was like, oh, I didn't know that was okay to write like that. Like I I thought you had to be more 
I don't know, like stilted or more constrained or, but she's not. And my book is not like a lot of people who read my book will say, especially people that are close to me, they're like, it's like going out for coffee with you. They're like, I can hear you talking. Like your voice is in my head when I read your book. It's very conversational style. Which, is, Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a great way to put it. So that impacted me right now. I'm just like, I read lots of comedy stuff. So it's, I'm a bit obsessed with, <laughs> I'm obsessed right now with comedy. So yeah. That's a good thing in a good you way. Go deep dive. You're absolutely. You're getting into. It. Oh man, this question is something I ask people, and I'm like, so what's the most controversial thing people don't know about you, but that really matters? And and it doesn't have to be controversial. Maybe the word is important. You can choose whichever one you want. That's a really hard question. I'm such an open book. I mean, I wrote a book. That's the hard thing for me because I'm like, I'm kind of out there. That's it. That may be um, the. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to think. That, can I just say something funny that that made me think of instead of answering your question? Yep. I mean, my book was well-reviewed in general, but some people would be like, like, she just talks about herself. <laughs> or she's so full of herself. The book's just about, she's just talking about herself. I'm like, it's a memoir. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. That's what's going to happen if you read a memoir. <laughs> I don't. Sorry if you don't like that. It is about me. It's me. It's only about me. Did they expect it to be about a dog? maybe (laughs) this is nothing like red dog this is is, what is going on the dog on the cover is not mentioned till the end i want a refund yeah people that just always makes me laugh and what's with the welly boots (laughs) and the cute dress yeah do you call them welly boots i don't know (laughs) well i'm I'm we're canada's like we're all mixed up right with the and my parents are british so i know what you're saying i don't know that i use that i feel like you're bilingual we've had this yeah, yeah, we've had this sort of back and forth. When yeah, use, yeah. Uh, British words or Scottish words. And I'm like, wait, where what is she from? doing? What is she doing? This Canadian person. Why is this confusing? So yeah, I think people know a lot of things about what? me. Okay, I'm trying to. Th- now I'm trying to think of a, like a like. The, do I have a secret? I don't know. I mean, oh yeah, you can like totally bury yourself on air. Yeah, no, I don't really have a secret. Something that's important to me is my marriage, and I've been with Steve for like 25 years, and I think that's super cool. Like I just. It's a very like grounding, solid part of my life, which is amazing. So that's not controversial, but it's cool. Like I just, I, you know, I've been with him longer than internet dating has existed. Like, I don't even know what people are talking about with internet dating and yeah. So I have a very like, yeah, that's a very steady. So like people say, oh, you moved around a lot, but I'm like, but I always had Steve. I've always been with Steve and like, and Steve's awesome. Everyone who knows Steve, everyone likes Steve better than me. If I meet you at a conference and Steve's there, you will instantly be like oh steve's the best and then you'll be like sarah what do you bring to the table honestly but no he's awesome i mean that's just important i guess that's an important part of my life there you go i answered your question i answered your difficult question all right if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation and this is graduation from vet school since you've done quite a lot of graduating and losing tenure or leaving tenure positions. Let's go for <laughs> the, the vet school graduation. <laughs> what, what, what okay. You? okay. <laughs> no, well, you were deported from Florida. So like, I think I went, that counts yeah, as losing true. tenure. Losing. <laughs> like you were yeah, deported by a crocodile molesting Ooh. pedophile from Florida. <laughs> oh my God. Florida people are mad. Well, there is a controversial thing okay. you didn't mention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just made me think of a funny story. But what was your question again? I want to hear the funny story. Okay. Screw the question. So my husband's a large animal vet. We lived in Florida and he worked with cattle. It was like a group of cow, like real cowboys, like 
you know, they all had cowboy names. So they were drinking on the job. And one of the cowboys told on the other cowboy, this is a real story. And then, okay, I just have to think, okay, then they started fighting because they didn't know which cowboy told on the other cowboy because they're drunk at work. And then someone pulled a gun out. Like the fighting, they all have guns on them. The fighting got so ferocious, someone pulled a gun on the other person. And then another cowboy (laughs) called the police. And then the police came and broke it up, but then discovered there was a dead alligator in the back of someone's pickup truck. And you can't, they're protected in Florida. You can't just kill an alligator. You have to have a tag to kill an alligator. And so then they got arrested for having a dead alligator in their truck. And like, this is just a regular day. Steve would just come home and be like, this happened today. And honestly, you'd just be like, okay. Like, it was just bizarre. Anyway, you just... <laughs> I, I sort of now have Florida map. You know, the map of Florida, like yeah. real Florida map. Yeah. Do you know the one? Like, and it's like rich. Uh, I don't know if oh, we can say yeah, any of yeah. this, but basically yeah. it's like, like rich old white people, rich old white people, oranges and rednecks, rednecks, rich old white people, basically Cuba at the bottom. And it's that sort of map. Yeah. A Disney, yeah, tourist trap, Disneyland in the middle. Yeah, we lived outside of Gainesville on a farm where my husband worked. And it was like kind of between Gainesville and Orlando, like Ocala. And it was very rural. It was interesting experience, but it was like, it was eye-opening. So, yeah, but that was the thing that happened. Like, and like Steve would just come home and tell me these stories about things that happened that day. I was like, what? Like, what? You know, it, very different. Very different. I'm going to pull you back to the question. So, given that preamble, if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at, at graduation, what would it be? Oh, yeah. I think if things aren't going well in your job, you need to make a change. I think that I had an incident like my first year being a veterinarian. And it was a terrible clinic for me. It was like, and I would say it was a terrible clinic. Like they used the same pack for multiple spays. And like, it was just like the quality of medicine was so bad. And I was trying to practice my standard of medicine. And the boss would like smack dogs in the back. Like it was just, and I knew after one day I went in and I was like, this was a mistake. Like this was such a mistake. And I should have just left. But I was like, I'm not a quitter. (laughs) I'm no quitter. And let me tell you, three months later, I got fired. Because the boss was like, you don't fit in here. He's like, this isn't working. And you know what? If it's not working and you're not the boss, guess who's leaving? <laughs> you. Yeah. And I think there's this thing in veterinarians, like we don't quit. And we keep going. We keep going and we suck it up and we tough it out. And like sometimes it's just not a good fit. And you just got to say, it's okay. Like find what works, you know, find something that works for you. So yeah, there you go. That's my advice with a crazy story about how I got fired from my first veterinary job. I love that. That's also the most controversial thing that people didn't know. That's true. Oh, I got fired from my first veterinary you're... job. Oh, bring on the rapid fire, man. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I know. Like, this is, you're, like, you're all over this. This comedy training's paid off in space. Oh. I tell you, this is a great advert for why people need to get on the comedy battle bus right now. Yeah, they do. Okay, last question. You ready for okay. it? I don't know. Go for it. All right. If you could send, and let's go Instagram post because you kind of, you kind of Instagram fan, right? Like, yeah. So, if you could send one Instagram post to the world, and everyone's phone, or maybe it's veterinary medicine, and everyone's phone would light up, and they would all get and see this image, message, whatever it may be. What would that message say? Everyone in the world are just veterinarians. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify. Your choice. Well, I think for the veterinarians and I am trying to do this in my own way, is like not to take things so seriously. 
think we get a little too serious. So not that everything's a joke because it's not, but you've got to recognize that if I put out a stupid cage liner about something stupid that happened to me, it probably happened to a hundred other veterinarians that week all over the world, which is super cool. And you've just got to realize like, like the last one I just posted was this owner was like, oh no, she's doing fine. She hasn't eaten in two weeks. And that literally happened. Like some of the cage liners, they're just, I'm just writing stuff that happened to me that day. I'm like, what? But like, your dog's fine, but hasn't eaten in two weeks. Like, that's not fine. It's not okay. And like, but, and it's horrible. And I feel bad for the dog, but it's also hilarious that a client would say that. And then people were responding like, oh yeah, like they're coming for a nail trim. The dog's like, you know, has bloody diarrhea or whatever. And the client's like, oh yeah, is that a problem? So like, it's happening to all of us. You have to realize that like, Yes, that's horrible. Objectively, it's horrible for that dog. But it's also hilarious because it happens to every single veterinarian all over the world. And we have to connect through the, the laughter. And that's like the mission of the cage liner and the mission of the, my humor, whatever I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. But that's my mission is like for people to kind of go, oh, it's not just me. It's like, this is just a thing that happens when you're a vet. And it's kind of funny. Like, it actually is funny. If you just stop getting out of your head, just get out of your head for one second. It's actually funny. So that is like my overall message when I'm not talking about how to do good cancer surgery. That's my overall message to veterinary medicine. Yeah. I love it. For anyone interested in following Dr. Sarah Boston, number one, you've got your Instagram page at Dr. Sarah Boston. And you also have it is extremely amusing cage liner at cage liner as your other Instagram alternate news source, which I love. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Time has gone quickly. That was a long one. Oh, it went fast. Are there any last messages or anything you'd like to leave the audience with this evening? Take an improv class and follow the cage liner. That's all I got. And I'll stop inspirational. Be happy. Laugh. Peace out. We're done. So that wraps up the show for another month. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Really appreciate you. And if you enjoyed today's guest, Sarah, don't forget to shout her out on the socials. Quite a remarkable career and not done yet. I think you'll agree. Now, if you are enjoying the show, if you missed us in the month that we were gone, as I took a wee month off from recording, please don't forget to share the love. Tell people about the show, Blunt the Section Podcast, where you get the best long-form interviews in veterinary medicine. Shout us out on iTunes, give us a star rating and a little bit of feedback. That'd be appreciated as well. Until next time, from all of us here at Vedex International, be safe, be well, and be happy.